0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse.
1: Hi everyone, I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the Weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this.
2: What jumped out to me, I guess, as I read it as me, a Muslim myself, um, was that while God isn't explicitly mentioned, God just seems all over it to me. And I think you know, it seems God's all over it because you know we're reading that story in in retrospect, so we can see how everything played out perfectly. And you know, um, Esther did the right thing, and she was put in the, this position for the right reason. And it just happened to be that the king got insomnia and asked for the court records to be read to him, which reminded him that Mordecai did him this favor. Like you see, how even in these tiny little things, God was stitching knitting everything together for for this this good outcome of protecting the 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 jewish people um and i so to me it seems like you can see god all over it and it makes me wonder like if all of our stories at at the end of our lives if our entire life story was written down similarly and in 500 a thousand two thousand years people were reading that story if they too would go oh it was so obvious seeing god's hand all over that like At the time, they thought they were in this terrible position and it was awful and none of it made sense. And yet we can see as their story progressed, God's hand was over all of it.
1: All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode.
3: I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today. Dr. Susan Carlins is an academic, author and regular social commentator. Her teaching and research expertise are in gender, sociology, and contemporary Australia. Dr. Carlin's PhD was published under the title Fighting Islam in 2017 on feminism and Islam, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, The Age, in academic publications, and numerous anthologies. In 2012, she was named on the 20 most influential Australian female voices lists by The Age. She has also been named on the 500 most influential muslims in the world list and as a muslim leader of tomorrow by the un alliance of civilizations and so we're just so grateful susan to have you on uh, inverse podcast welcome
2: thank you so much i'm so happy to be here Uh,
0: susan this is delight and uh, usually we ask people um, uh, what particular passage they have chosen to explore. But being the incredible overachiever that you are, you you have not merely chosen a passage. What what have you chosen?
2: Uh, I'm not sure if overachievers, the world may be um, indecisive. I've actually chosen chosen a whole book. So I've chosen the book of Esther because, um, you know, when you approached me, Jared, and you said we really want to talk about theology that can liberate and how does it tie in with oppression um I feel like there's a lot that we can dig out of of this one um now obviously I, I'm i I have to admit I'm nervous about doing this podcast you know and I've done a lot of media um, as both guest and interviewer yeah. and I was thinking this morning why am I nervous about this and I think it's because um I'm, you know, choosing the book of Esther means that I can potentially and inadvertently offend both Christians and Jews. So I'm worried about that. I, I mean, to be honest, like I, I, I'm very conscious right. of inadvertently being a bull in a China shop. So I'm, I'm worried about that. I'm also conscious that I am a Muslim I'm white, you know, I bring these things that may mean that I read things in a way that is not how other people see them or may inadvertently be hurtful. So I'm nervous I'm going to say that, but also, like, I think it's important that even all of us when we're in situations where we think we could say the wrong thing, that we don't use that as an excuse not to participate in a conversation. So um, up front, I apologise if I get this wrong. (laughs) Um, You know, it's um, this is just... What what jumped out at me as I was reading the text are quite a few like key themes that I think are useful for us to think about when we are when we think about oppression. Um, mm. So we'll, well, and and I welcome your your critical feedback.
0: Oh, we really appreciate your sensitivity. Um, it says a lot about uh, you as well as well as um, uh, your your intellectual integrity and uh, desire spiritually to. Um, to embody your tradition in ways that doesn't come at the cost of others that's one of many reasons why we love you um did you want to uh, read a, a particular part or are we just going to go up front with like just kind of have esther in the background and if if you haven't encountered it before we'll come back to it later H- how would you like to roll um
2: well if you like how about if i give you a really quick summary of the of the, the book um, sure. And then there's a couple of key passages that I think we can particularly mine. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar uh, with the book of Esther, um, Esther is a, was a young, a young Jewish queen um, sort of thrust into this role, probably not by her choosing. If we read between the lines, it probably wasn't mm-hmm. something she was running towards. So the, the, the story sort of starts, this story is, it's a remarkable book in the Bible. It, it's, it reads like a Shakespeare play. It's so um, there's so many twists and turns. There's um, uh, you know the characters are so rich. There's surprises. It really does read like it, it would be it would be beautiful on the stage, and it's also a really unusual book because it's the only book of the Bible where God's not mentioned explicitly, That's right. yeah. and yet God is so present.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so anyway, the story starts where the king who has two names rather uh, difficult to say for me at least, let's just call him the king. He's having uh, a, a banquet which goes for literally six months, 180 days. This is the party to end all parties. And when he's, you know, in the middle of this party, he decides that he wants to bring out his, his hot wife would be the, the, the best way to put it. He's got this beautiful wife and he wants her to come so the other men can basically see how beautiful his wife is. And uh, he can be praised because of, of the beauty of his wife. Now, what's really interesting is his wife, who's actually at the same time, time holding a banquet for the, for the women, refuses. Hmm. And this is interesting to me, and just as an aside, Something that really jumped out at me is the two main women in this book the king's first wife and then Esther later. Both of these women stand up to the king. Mm -hmm. Both uh, the first wife, the first queen, by refusing, just saying, I'm just not going to do what you want me to do. And we can understand why. It would have been incredibly objectifying. It also might have been a bit scary. Um, This was a group of men who'd been drinking for six months that she was being asked (laughs) to on parade in front of. Yeah,
0: sure. Um,
2: So she is the first one to stand up to the king. And then later, of course, we see how Esther goes and stands up to the king. And they stand up to him both in very different ways. But I think that's something really interesting that immediately as a woman reading the text, this jumped out at me. Mm. So anyway, she refuses. This is the ultimate humiliation to the king. He says, that's enough of you, wife. Time to get a new gorgeous wife. And this, this big search is on for the most beautiful white woman, young woman in the kingdom. Um, Esther is one of, of many chosen to see if she would please the king. She spends 12 months getting ready to be beautiful enough to be presented to the king, which I think, um, you know, any young women out there that are thinking about getting ready for their wedding, imagine spending 12 hours, just, 12 months, sorry, just putting oil in your hair and your body. Um, now, she becomes his wife and what, of course, the king doesn't know is that she's Jewish. This is hidden from uh, from the king and and she. this was told to her. The, the instruction was given to her by Mordecai, who we think was her cousin. She'd been an orphan and he'd taken her in and he'd said, you know, for your own sake, don't tell them that you're Jewish. But we can really see the care that Mordecai had for her. Um, he's obviously very protective of her. He He raised her when she was an orphan. Also, once she's in the the palace the bible says that every day he would go for a walk to try to hear how is she what's going on with her i can't speak Mm. with her necessarily directly but i want to know how she's going i'm I'm worried about her um and mordecai overhears when he's at the gates he overhears about a plot to assassinate the king and he reports this and i think this is our first interesting note for people who are interested in fighting oppression Mm is that Mordecai hears about this plot to assassinate the king and he reveals it and um, the assassination plot is prevented. But Mordecai doesn't get anything. I heard one biblical scholar say he didn't even get a fruit basket. Nothing. No. (laughs) And I remember being really struck by this because I imagined what Mordecai must have thought of the king. He probably Mm. really hated this man. Mm. He obviously knew the king wouldn't be too thrilled with Jews, otherwise he wouldn't have told Esther not to say anything so he had some sense of who this king was he also knew that esther had essentially been taken away from him by this king so he probably doesn't like him personally for that reason either this is his you know his cousin we think that he was really loving and protective towards and yet in that moment he still does the right thing and warns the king of um the assassination attempt and gets no reward for it Mm. whatsoever and i think this that's just an aside i remember when i read it i thought it's how important it is for all of us to do the right thing, even against the people that hurt us or potentially harm us, that we have to have that strong internal sense of our own, what is right to do in this moment, even if I don't like that person. Anyway, uh, that happens. We'll, we'll, skip, we'll skip along a bit, but there's this man called Haman who, um, who decides that he hates Jews. He actually decides he hates Jews because of Mordecai. Which again, I think was an interesting aside, because when I read that, that Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. And that infuriated Haman. And because of that, because Mordecai said, I'm not going to bow down to you, Haman decided he was going to annihilate all of the Jews. And when I read that, um, I read that as as a Muslim, obviously. And my first thought was, the way we can have one seemingly negative encounter with someone of a different group and therefore we hate the whole group. You were this so I hate all of you and ideally I would like to destroy all of you. And it also reminded me of the Quranic story because what was really evident in that, in the, um, the, the, that encounter with Haman was it's his arrogance. He wanted Mordecai to bow to him and Mordecai refused, and this was such an insult to Haman's um, sense of self, his his arrogance, really, which in the Quranic story, um, when we're in the the Garden of Eden, what the Bible calls the Garden of Eden, the reason Iblis is um, rejected by God, the the angel Iblis is rejected by God, is because he refuses to bow down to Adam, Hmm. and he says... Uh, God says, I command all of you, all of you angels, all of you creatures to bow down to Adam, this prophet Adam. And Iblis says, why should I? I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. I was created from fly- fire. You just created him from clay. And for, um, so I refused to bow down to him. And so Muslims understand that the first sin was arrogance and it was an arrogance born out of racism that I am am this and you are that, I'm better than you. And so it was that original sin of arrogance and racism that was the reason that Iblis was cast out. So when I read that story, I saw that similar arrogance in Haman of uh, you should bow down to me. And Mm. it was that arrogance that we know from the end of the story is what causes Haman's demise, it's that arrogance and desire that thinking they're better that ends up uh, being what kills him. So anyway, Haman decides, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And this is where I think is the first most important, for me, lesson in, in this story for when we think about oppression is that uh, Mordecai hears that all the Jews are going to be, um, the, it, it's really interesting terminology that's used. Um, it says killed, I think the three words were killed, destroyed and annihilated killed, destroyed and annihilated. This is what was going to happen to the Jews. Mordecai hears this and he immediately goes into mourning because, of course, he knows what it means. There is literally no greater oppression than genocide. What could be worse than a genocide? And he knew this is what his people were facing. So he goes into his, um, he goes, gets into his sackcloth. Now, this is, uh, I found, one of the most telling exchanges in the whole book. Mordecai is in his sackcloth, his mourning clothes, which means he is not allowed to approach Esther. He's not allowed to approach Esther. He's not allowed to go beyond the city, the king's gates in his, in his mourning clothes, in his sackcloth. And so um, Mordecai sends a message to Esther and says, this is what's going to happen. You need to you, you know we're, we're facing oppression. And Esther sends back the message to him, Get out of your sack clothes. Get changed so we can talk. Hmm. And Mordecai refuses. And I think there is so much in that exchange for both the person who is oppressed and also the person that wants to help.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because at that moment, um, Mordecai is, first of all, he's, his um, grief and his mourning are, are what's isolating him. We know that when we're in grief and mourning, we're being we're isolated. It's literally shutting him off. It's literally keeping him away. And I think we know that grief is very isolating. Yeah. But when uh, Esther says to him, get changed here, I'm sending you clothes, get changed, let's talk. And he refuses. It's like Esther has said to him, I'm happy to talk about your oppression or the genocide or, or what's happening, but I just need you to change this first. Meet me the way I, I want you to meet me. Get, mm. get out of that. Leave that behind so we can talk about it. And Mordecai, in a very um, dignified way, refuses and oh. says, no, no, this is where we are now. I'm not getting changed. I will literally not change. You need to change. I'm not gonna let go of this expression or manifestation of my oppression. I'm not I'm not gonna take that off to make it easier for you to talk to me. This is this is who I am and this is where I am, and you need to meet me like this. And I think about that as what that says for the person who's oppressed, that um and the way you know our our loneliness and our oppression is what's keeping outside, us outside of the gates.
1: Mm. And
2: so the person that can help us or the people that might want to help us, we can't we can't ask them, get over it, squash it down, get rid of those feelings and, and then we'll talk. You know, th- those mm-hmm. manifestations you won't let go of, just get rid of them so we can talk about how I can help you. Um, and he says, no, no, we're not, I'm not doing that anymore. This is, this is the situation I'm in and you need to meet me where I am. I think there's something in that in the dignity of the mm-hmm. oppressed person saying this is where we are and you meet me where I am. And also Esther having to hear that message that we, don't, we shouldn't be asking people to change the experience and the manifestation of their pain so we are willing to talk to them and, and hear about what's going. He was literally clothed in his grief. Mm-hmm. It was literally enveloping him, and he said to her, "I'm not getting changed. You change." So then, then what happens is um, the what I think is you know one of the most powerful uh, passages in this book. Let me see if I can get it up, where um, he he says he sends him message, he says, "I'm not getting changed. This is how I am. You need to meet me where I am." And what I'm telling you is you need to speak to the king and um, save us, essentially. And Esther says, if I do that, that will be my death. Everyone knows if you approach the king without being invited, it's, it, it'll be your death. And this is, this is, I'll read now the Bible verse to you. This is what he, Mordecai sends a message back to her and he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. night or day i and my tenants will fast as you do and when this is done i will go to the king even though it is against the law and if i perish i perish hmm. so again i think this is the next compelling passage in our in our thinking about oppression helping who's help who's the helper i think the first thing that struck out to me it is so it is such a smack in the face where it's essentially said your status won't save you. You think you can be saved in all of this and maybe in this moment your position, your identity, your role will protect you. It won't protect you. Whether you speak out or not, maybe you won't speak out for us at this time, but it will come for you eventually. You can't, you, you, your status won't save you. And then the next line when he says, if you, you know, if you don't speak out, Fine. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Hmm. And there's so much in that. It could mean, we we know, not necessarily, it doesn't mean no one will die in that moment. But what I feel like Mordecai is saying is, you're not the saviour here.
3: Mm -hmm. Never
2: forget, and I think that's something for those of us that like to think that we're helping and doing the work of eliminating oppression maybe against people who are different to us, like we're Mm -hmm. allies or helping or whatever, we're not the Mm saviour. And I think if we're people of faith or people of God, we need to really keep in mind that God doesn't actually need us. Like Mm -hmm. his plan will happen regardless, and we need to be very careful to remind ourselves I'm not the savior in this situation. In fact, this work that I do, of course it's the right thing to do and important to do in in my concern of my fellow humans. But also as this verse says, if you don't do this, it's just you who will lose out, yourself and your family. It's your own spiritual death that will happen. And maybe physical death as well that will happen eventually. So don't ever go in thinking, I'm the one saving. God's actually the one saving. You know, if we're, if we're religious people, that's what we think. And God will God's plan will happen and he will use whoever he needs to to make that happen. It's not us. I'm not the saviour in this situation, which I think is so easy for us to forget when we're trying to be the good ally and trying to help. And if I don't do it, then who possibly will? It's so important. And that doesn't negate our role. That doesn't negate our responsibility in, in, in doing the right thing, but I think it's always about keeping our own ego in check um, mm. and never, never losing sight of who's actually in control and how it's not about us.
0: Oof.
2: We're not the saviour. Um, and, and
0: friends, that, that's just the summary. That's just, okay. uh, I, I'm, I'm ready for the altar call already, sorry. Susan. Like, I, oh I'm, Yeah, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm, no, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, no, no, no really it's... Good.
3: This was really good. Yeah. Um, And so I want to pause you for a second because we want to come back to this. But before that, like one of the things we love to do is to juxtapose how someone engages texts with thinking about someone's own story. Right. Because I think Mm -hmm. it's just so beautiful for us to kind of uh, enter into other people's stories and then think about how we approach scripture and how we read it and how those two things come together. So before we come, we'll circle back to that conversation on Esther, but I, I'm really fascinated to hear about the first time that you remember encountering um, scriptures, the sacred scriptures, mm. or early memories. Um, I'm curious your thoughts and memories yeah. that, that emerge.
2: I had, um, and I still have actually, but it's so, um, I had, I had a, a beautiful Bible. I think it was the Good News, uh, Good, News Good News Version. Mm-hmm. Good news, Bible, blue cover, dove on the front, rainbow, probably on it every you know iconic biblical image from the front cover, and I loved that Bible so much. I read it so much the whole spine literally fell off. Not just the cover, like the whole thing, all of it fell apart. And I read that and read that, and I loved it. I just loved it so much. So my earliest experiences with scripture were so uh, positive and so nurturing. Um, you know, my Bible was just full of little notes that I'd written in the margin and underlining. And, you know, they were obviously, you know, I was a kid and then I was a teenager. So they were not, certainly not the most advanced uh, <laughs> insights. But I think it showed that there was, I always had this thirst to be connected to God and mm. understand how God was talking to me.
0: That's mm. beautiful. That's yeah, beautiful. Um, Susan, you mentioned the um, the beauty of, those early experiences we often ask if there was a spectrum of experiencing the scriptures as liberating or oppressive where would you place yourself along such a spectrum that's
2: really interesting I think so my earliest experience like my experience of like really trying to engage with the bible was sort of up until about 17 so I think at that age I was pretty um I don't even know if I was thinking it in the frames of liberation or oppression. I was just like, what mm-hmm. does God think and what does, what does God say? And certainly there were verses that I remember finding um, troubling or confusing, like what does that mean? Or, yeah. you know, is that just in the Bible as a story because that's what happened at the time or is that prescriptive? Does that mean mm-hmm. we should believe that now? Um, which I think, you know, I think for people who are, in any religion and any, you know, and that's something that I even now I have as a Muslim when I read the Quran, we still wrestle with is what was descriptive and what was prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember, um, you know, wondering about that. Um, but, you know, my mom was, uh, my mom was and is a Christian and a very, um, <laughs> very. how would I describe my mom's Christianity? She loves um I think his name's John Shelby Spong, pretty radical type interpretation. So she, whenever I'm sort of say, you know, what about this? We go, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. that don't, we don't need to worry about that anymore. So my mum was really um, happy and confident just to say, oh, like that's in the past. If, don't worry about that, which I thought, I think sort of gave me permission to be like, okay, like there are parts that um, if, I'm, if I'm struggling with them or confused by them, I, 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 it doesn't need to feel like a deal breaker. I guess. And obviously as I've become an adult and I engage with scripture differently or or more thoroughly, I can sit with tension better, I think. Mm. But my earliest, I guess, engagement taught me that I didn't need to be scared of those verses.
0: Mm. Susan, um, you you describe uh, your attention to scripture and then talked of your mum's love of um, uh, the um, Episcopalian uh, priest, John Shelby Spong, um, who maybe kind of typifies, uh, a, a modernist liberal, um, uh, uh, low view of scripture. Um, were those things that clashed or did you grow up, um, uh, in a form of Christianity that your mother didn't share at the same time? Or was that an ongoing conversation between those two things? How How did that work together?
2: Yeah, so I think up until I was 12, I went to the Uniting Church with my mum. I'm not sure what the, uh, what would be the American version of the Uniting Church. Is that Episcopalian?
0: Uh, It would be um, Methodists and Congregationalists Mm -hmm. and um, uh, Liberal Presbyterians all coming together. So in in Canadian (laughs) listeners. Which will never happen
3: in the US.
2: So like the way I think about the Uniting Church now, if I see they're very, they're often at the forefront of the more progressive like interpretations or readings. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But so on the one hand, it's it's that. But on the other hand, I think, you know, particularly as I became a teenager, like it felt, um, it's interesting now that I look back at the as a teenager, it felt really old and stuffy because everyone in the church was old. Like there were no really young people. The music wasn't cool, even though the messaging was very um, modern and fresh. I suppose you could say. Um, and as a teenager, I felt like I wanted to be around more young people and have, you know, cooler music. And so, when I was thirteen, I started, of my own volition, I started going to the Baptist church, which horrified my mum, as you can imagine, as a proponent of <laughs> John. Just like what and I was like, I'm being baptized, and I think it was horrifying for her. But it was a church that was the music was cool, and the um, the there were a lot of other young people, and also it was I had the most positive experience there. The staff there were so lovely and so kind and so attentive. I couldn't have had a better church experience there. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to my mom's credit, because I think it horrified her theologically that I was going to a Baptist church, but every Sunday she drive me there and drop me off. So I could go to the church um, by myself. Um, so there was, you know, it, it, I guess it was um, a good, <laughs> maybe important of things to come to my mom about, you know, your daughter's going to go on a, a different religious journey to you and, uh, you need to be prepared for that.
3: Right. <laughs> so the Baptists warmed her up a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I'm wondering, is it a takeaway that um, uh, Baptist faith is a slippery slope to Islam? Is that the takeaway? <laughs> that...
2: Uh, I would just like it on the record that it was Jared that said that and That's not
0: sick. me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's right. Cover yourself. Yes. Jared Jared doesn't mind getting in trouble. Um, So yeah, this is really fascinating. I I love hearing those early stories and memories and um, just the way that people kind of, I don't know. It's just fascinating to hear how you've encountered. And so I'm thinking about like now, as you think about this journey that you have been on, right, this religious uh, journey that you've been on over these many years. And again, like this relationship between um, the sacred scriptures and your own story. I'm thinking, I'm curious, uh, what from your own lived experience do you think uh, has helped you so that when you come to the texts and when you read mm-hmm. these biblical passages, like what from your experience has shaped that lens, that hermeneutical kind of perspective that may might be a, a gift to others to consider as we come to, to text? Because uh, there's a unique way in which our own stories um, help us read and see things that maybe others might not see or think about.,
1: mm, that's a really good
2: question, and I don't know that I do have any particular wisdom. I can only think of what um, what drives me when I approach scripture, like for example, when I read the Quran now is a sincere belief that this is something you know Muslims believe that the Quran was written for all people of all times. And so if I genuinely believe that, that I have to believe that God wrote that for me for right now as well, that, that there are specific messages from God right in this text right now uh, of lessons that I need to learn. And, you know, I'm sure you all experience that yourselves. You'll read the same Bible stories or passages a million times and suddenly one day you will read it again and a whole new thing will just jump out at you, a, a new lesson um that that can just emerge that you never noticed at the time but because of the situation you are in um suddenly you read it really differently Mm. and so i think i think that is a big part for me is that i i need to sincerely believe that uh this is there are messages in there for me from god that are relevant for me right now and today and that i guess the other thing for me is that um it's easy it's easy muslims say you don't read the quran the quran reads you Mm. and i think we can again that's probably something that that um that translates across every religious text The way a person reads it and interprets it and understands who God is and what God's saying says a lot more about that person necessarily than anything that may or may not be in the text. And so I'm very conscious that when I come to Scripture that I need to have a good opinion of God, Mm. that it's important that I don't come with this vision of the disinterested or vengeful deity but that I come with a sincere belief that this is a message being sent to me and everyone else um, from a loving, connected God that sincerely wants the best for me. And that doesn't mean the best for me won't hurt. Mm. You know, the, uh, being a believer doesn't, is, there is is no promise from God in the Bible or the Quran that if you believe, suddenly you will live a painless existence.
0: Yeah.
2: But what I do feel is that what God says, if you actually read the Quran and the Bible is terrible things will happen, painful things will happen, but I'll be with you. And this is not pointless. Mm. And that's, I think what I bring to it when I particularly when I'm reading the Quran, when things are very difficult and I'm really trying to make sense of things and God, what message are you trying to give and how do you want me to be in this moment? What is the right thing for me to do now? Um, if I try to read it with that lens, then it's amazing what will actually emerge.
0: Wow. Um, I'm so struck. Um, so I'll confess, Susan, um uh, I tried to read the Quran for the first time when I was 15 years old, mm. and um, it was only after being so impacted by um, Spike Lee's joint Malcolm X, and um, I was like, maybe, maybe I haven't re- read the conclusion of the story. Maybe, I-. and I found it, I found it really difficult a- as reading ancient texts from any tradition. Um, uh, it, it is, is difficult particularly for a 15 year old right um, mm-hmm. But one of the things I was struck by the, the start of each, so the start of each chapter um, uh, God all compassionate or merciful mm-hmm. framed um, and th- to, to go to that um, point that you brought up like our how we understand God, uh, I know many Christians who would do well that if they started reading a- any verse, in the Bible, any chapter in the Bible, um, they'd start well to remember that God is all compassionate and merciful, um, uh, and don't often uh, get that far. Um, but the the, the for um, for many becomes a, a lens to read Scripture, like how to see, and um, for, for for Christians, as you know, but particularly for Drew and I, right? Like um, uh, we take that whole Jesusy thing even further that. Um, Jesus is, is our Bishma, is our introduction to every um, uh, passage. Um, uh, there's a couple of questions. Um, one, what particular, and I know your PhD work was on this, but um, uh, when it comes to engaging um, traditions where everything isn't always read through um, the the nature of God being revealed as tender or compassionate, um, and it isn't always read through um, a, a, a gregarious or even grotesque um, generosity or, or grace, um, but is read through uh, any number of other lens. I'd be really interested to hear your own journey with um, uh challenging that within your own tradition, but maybe it's a, a great entry back into Esther as well. I'm also aware that as um, you struggle with integrity within your own tradition, you're also um, a religious minority as Esther was in a, a larger setting that um, uh, Islamophobia has been in the air um, uh, for quite some time in Australia and um, uh during our lifetime and the the complexities of those inside outside conversations and different pressures does that give you enough to play with um, that wasn't <laughs> a very precise question was it i have
2: suddenly realized i think i've forgotten the first three questions yeah. you asked me. Remind me the
0: questions. <laughs> um per- permissions to play around those inside outside tensions and the lenses that we um we bring um when particularly uh Sometimes it's those within our own tradition that can give us the hardest time.
2: Mm, yeah, definitely. I think that's something that, I mean, yeah, My so my PhD was looking at the way Muslim women fight sexism. Um, and it was something that I wanted to do because uh, I felt like every time I met a non-Muslim, there was just the assumption that uh, Muslim women, all Muslim women were oppressed They were all complicit in their own oppression and they had never done anything or ever tried to do anything about it. (sighs) Um, On the one hand, that was the one, on the one hand. But then also there was this attitude within the Muslim community that, um, any woman who might, any Muslim woman who might want to try to fight sexism within the Muslim community, was bringing this outside a Western feminist, colonialist lens to the community, and it was un-Islamic. And she was a bad Muslim, and this is this brand new Western thing that you're trying to import into our religion. And why are you doing that? Hmm. Which I knew, I knew both of that was uh, both of those perspectives were just garbage. I knew that from the, the his, reading the history of my religion and and reading it from the earliest days of islam the earliest mm. days of islam there were muslim women who fought against the sexism they experienced especially the sexism that was done to them in the name of their religion thank mm. you so much oh, my husband speaking of oppression my husband has just dropped off uh, breakfast to me while i'm
0: doing oh, this. On your
2: oh he also got me churros and chocolate for some reason so thanks babe um <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, the, the early stages of Islam that Muslim women were fighting sexism within the Muslim community. They were fighting sexism that was done to them in the, in the name of religion, and they were fighting that sexism using their religion as the tool to fight against that oppression. Yeah. So we have records of this happening at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, that women would come to him and complain and say, this is happening, this man did this to me, There's a classic example of a woman came to the Prophet Muhammad and said, my father has made me marry this man against my consent. And the Prophet said, if that's the case, the marriage is annulled because Islamically both parties have to agree. You can't be forced into marriage. So if that's the case then your marriage is annulled, you're free to get out of your marriage. And she said, actually, I have no problem being married to this man. I'm happy to be staying married. But I came to you so you would say that so everyone else would hear what actually religious Hmm. rights are. So from the earliest days of Islam, and there's heaps of other stories of that, after the prophet died, women again standing up to men saying, actually, the prophet Muhammad never said that. You don't get to say that this is our religion and make treat us, well, there's one case where a woman said, you're treating us like donkeys? This He never said that. Stop trying to make this a religious ruling. So from the earliest days this was happening, this isn't some Western import, this, this Western feminism that's just been suddenly introduced to Muslim women that never had any clue or never cared about the sexism they were experiencing, but also this argument that well only irreligious muslim women would care about this and in fact these muslim women were very passionate about their faith and it was their faith they were using far from seeing their faith as the tool of oppression it was the tool they said that this is what's gonna um this is what will protect me and save us that you oppressing me is actually an insult to my religion Mm. and so my phd was i was interviewing muslim women in australia and overseas about how do you fight sexism why do you do it who supports you and who challenges you or who blocks you and and what what makes it so difficult and what something um that came out that was this was actually a concept that was identified by african-american female scholars back in the 70s this concept of the double bind Mm -hmm. um you know for those of you that don't know it's where it particularly if if you're in a minority community you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place when you try to advocate against your own oppression often. So in the case of Muslim women, um, I'll give you an example from one of the women I spoke to. She said, I'm a, you know, she was a Muslim woman leader. She wanted to organize an employment conference um, and she wanted to to encourage more Muslim women to get into the workforce. And she uh, wanted to have some imams, so like the kind of like the equivalent of, you know, uh, a Muslim priest. She wanted to have some imams on the panel And she was worried that at least one of them might say something sexist, like, well, really, women, you should be in the house. And so she had this tension because she also wanted to bring media to have publicity for the event and to raise this issue of we're having some barriers getting Muslim women into the workforce. There's sexism, but there's other barriers as well. And she said to me, I didn't know what to do. Do I invite the media and then have them report what this imam says, knowing it will be sexist, and then that will reinforce that negative stereotype that all Muslim men are oppressive and Muslim women are oppressed and their voices and whatever? Or do I not have this and we don't air this and I, we don't get to facilitate change in this area in our community? Mm. What do I do? So they're kind of bound in this position where um, discrimination or oppression from both sides can keep them locked in and they actually feed each other. And make yeah. it harder for the group to try to change things for themselves, and so that was kind of what I was looking for. So, I you know this idea of how often the the biggest problems can sometimes be within our community. Certainly, that's the case within the Muslim community. I don't know if they're maybe they're not the biggest, but they exist, and they also they exist in a not entirely, but in a in a frame that has been caused by those external voices as well. So often muslims would say to muslim women who are fighting sexism stop airing our dirty laundry you know what everyone will think of us so those are attitudes that come from a constant criticism from the outside as well Mm -hmm. now that doesn't justify it or make it okay but it helps explain what's going on in these dynamics and how it can make it so much harder for um communities to advocate for themselves and change things in ways that are meaningful for themselves when There's all this external pressure or negative negative attitudes that have been there for hundreds of years. Mm. You can't just switch them off.
3: Yeah, that's so good. And I definitely resonate. I mean, certainly in the African-American community, there has been that same tension where, you know, and you'll hear even among different Black women taking different stances to say, oh, we can't critique our Black men in public because they're being attacked by the broader society but then what ends up happening is then patriarchy is never named, right? And the sexism within the community is not being named. And so um, and so you see these tensions playing out um, certainly um, in our own communities as well. And I think that those are some of the things that they just, you have to get there, right? Otherwise they will never, it just you just reproduce the very same challenges. And so they've gotta be named. Yeah, that's really helpful.
1: Yeah.
0: So to to return to Esther and um, I mean uh, with Vashti and Esther there are almost these two different models right of uh, mm-hmm. what it is to challenge um, uh, the. These um, Persian powers um, that they're existing in, although differently, and then in Mordecai um, you've highlighted, and I thought so beautifully as well. I mean, you were just dropping bars <laughs> like that was, was like the whole way through. <laughs> it's like one of the greatest intros to the podcast we've ever had. It was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it was, I was like, whoa! Pe- people uh, uh, got their money's worth. This is great. Right. Um, but Mordecai provides like a an, another um, paradigm uh, as well, but. Um, as Crenshaw would remind us, like, that there is, uh, there's there's um, being able to name where power comes from and where it clashes and uh, where it collides. Um, y- you've done that with the text so brilliantly. But um, uh, where would you like to go with it now, Susan? Where, or, like...
2: Well, actually, yeah, there is somewhere I'd like to go and I'm really interested in hearing um, your opinions on this because this is something that really stood out for me, again, reading it as a Muslim um and I'd love to hear how you guys take this. Because like I said, I feel like this is a good, I really, there's a lot in this book for us to think about how we try to fight oppression, how we're allies, how we can be oppressed people, all these sort of things. So there's this, the the, the, the situation comes where Esther decides, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to speak truth to power, um, even if it means I die. If I perish, I perish. And so what she does is, first of all, she says, you know, all of you, I need you to all fast for three days. You know, and I like that image that you need Mm. a spiritual community with you where we have to all be in this together. But then what she does is she says, I'm going to organize a banquet. This whole book is full of banquets.
0: That's right. Yeah.
2: And so she organizes a banquet for the king, her husband, and also for Haman. And the king says, yes, yes, whatever you want. What do you want? Anything? I'll give you half my my uh, kingdom. And she says, no, let's just have a lovely dinner. And then I'd like to have another banquet with you. And then they go to have the other banquet. And it's then that she reveals, look, actually, there's this, you know, this man right here, he wants to kill me or all, all my people. He wants to <laughs> exterminate us. So here's what I wanted to ask your, uh, your thoughts on. Because I was looking at this in the, the approach that Esther used. when you know when Mordecai said you have to go and speak to the king we're we're all going to be killed this is going to be a genocide you need to do something she didn't just go straight to him and say listen please don't I'm Jewish you might not have realized I'm Jewish please please don't kill us all please don't have us all killed intervene immediately she first did this banquet which we I guess we can gather she knew the king really liked he liked the banquet so this was almost like a softening a softening Mm -hmm. approach and then she had a second banquet and it was then that she revealed it and even the way she spoke to the king like she she even says you know if if it was just going to be slavery I never would have even brought this up with you it's just because we were going to be killed you know I wouldn't have even bothered you you're too important (laughs) to even break but it's because we're going to be killed and if it pleases you and if you love me It's this really softly, softly approach. And it made me think about, there's this verse in the Quran that I think about a lot at the moment where we're thinking about how do we speak truth to power and how do we deal with people we don't like when we're trying to stand up for justice, that when when, uh, Moses in the Quran is called Musa, when Moses is sent to the Pharaoh, God tells Moses in the Quran, speak to him with wisdom and beautiful preaching. That's the instruction. And I think about that a lot because um, anyone I go to speak to or you go to speak to, I am not more rightly guided than Moses. And the person I'm speaking to (laughs) is not more of an oppressor than Pharaoh. And even in that situation, God says, speak with wisdom and beautiful preaching. So what does that look like? And so I was really struck by the way Esther did this. It was a very really gentle approach, really sort of bending over backwards. And I guess I'm interested to hear from from you, both of you or everyone, however, however you do it, what do we think about that? Hmm. As, as, as believers and people who are guided by the scripture, should we take, is there a wisdom in this in terms of the gentle, because in the end it was the most effective. She did hmm. get what she wanted. It, it did ensure that the king listened to her. And the goal was achieved. Um, so, on the one hand, you can make the argument for that. On the other hand, I imagine—you know—imagine, imagine, you know, imagine, imagine uh, I was invited to to give Trump advice when he was president on treatment of whatever. And imagine if that were the attitude, like if I sort of took that approach, I think people would be angry with me. They're like, "Really? That's how you? Or you know, or what? You know, Bashar al-Assad or whoever, whichever, whoever yeah. you want to think of. Really, you're sucking up." Why aren't you, sometimes you've got to tell people what's up. So I, I would love to hear from you, how do you understand this as, do you see it as instructive? Is there a lessons for us to learn in maybe the time that we're in for such a time as this? Do we, does this? Is this lesson equally applicable? Have we lost some of the wisdom and beautiful preaching in the way that we speak to the oppressor
3: or the enemy. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll start off because, I mean, when you were talking, I immediately was just thinking about all the diverse ways that African-Americans have confronted uh, white supremacist powers, right? There's just a whole wide range. Um, And I think about, you um, you know, there were times where, you know, Black folk, the most they could do is Uh, is put on a face of you know oh yes master right you know when they don't really mean that but they're trying to survive and so that the the severity of the vulnerability that they're experiencing um um that for survival for their very community and the Mm -hmm. so that there wouldn't even be a possibility to speak truth one day meant that at times um a softer word right a wise word a, a a and so, um, and so that there was a much more subversive way in which truth was spoken at that time, um, mm-hmm. because the direct speaking of truth would just meant annihilation for, for most of them. Um, on the other hand, I think about, you know, at the same time you've got, you know, David Walker writes in the North, um, raining down these like diatribes against, you know, white supremacy and slavery and stuff. As a free black man in the North, he could do that, right? He could speak so boldly, and he's calling for, um, you know, uprisings and things like that. Um, and I would actually say, and maybe this to push back on David Walker, he's he's upset that Southern blacks are not doing the same thing, right? Because they're not step, but they're in very different situations. And I think that that there is a responsibility, an ethical responsibility. That flows out of the very context that we live in, right? Um, And so I often say, like, even from my own self, like, there's certain things I can do now. Now that, you know, I've been teaching for the last five years, I'm a professor and all that stuff. I have summers off now, you know, all these different things. Um, There's certain things that I know I can do. I have flexibility around that a lot of folks, like, they can't make the same choices that I make, right? And so we can't have this kind of one size fits all. I, I think there is a need for a kind of contextual wisdom and discernment around our own situations. And it doesn't necessarily mean that just because someone's vulnerable that they can't, but, uh, but it should be prayerful and discerned um, what, what is right and faithful in that moment and not imposed on people. And we shouldn't put pressures on everyone to do the exact same thing. Now that said, yeah, if I'm before Trump, And, you know, and I come with a, you know, and I'm just waffling around, I I need to be called out, right? Um, And I hope my community would discern enough to know, um, Drew, you've got, there's no excuse for you not speaking truthfully. um, And in fact, there's maybe extra responsibility um, given um, my social reality at this moment, right? So anyway, that's some of what I'm thinking um, as I think about that question, yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks, Drew. Um, Susan, for um, for me, and this comes way of confession. Um, I and Drew, I'm not even sure I told you this, and I'll keep this vague because um, I'm aware that um, uh, this is being recorded. But I found out this week that a church that I dearly love, um, uh, in a part of the world um, different from where I live, um, faced the biggest number of, um, people withdrawing funds and leaving after a sermon I preached. And I, I, this is three years ago now, and I never knew. And I found out literally, um, drew, it was subversive seminary in the after party that some people, um, from this particular community told me, and I had no idea. And I was kind of in shock, um, for a while, a, that, um, the leadership didn't tell me, um, but the the older the older I get, I realise that um, and uh, th- those of us who are neurologically diverse there's, there's lots of wonderful um, uh, positive uh, uh, messages that um, people share, and some of us work our whole life to to cover up all the other stuff. But the cost of the other stuff, and I think sometimes my my own to answer the question personally um, uh, is. I think some people have looked at some of the things I've done and think it's courageous. Um and uh, in actual fact, it might just be Jared's um uh, hopefully compassionate, hopefully um resolute, but real impulsivity. And I'm not sure how much I mean, I don't want to remove my own agency in it. Um, and this is one of the things that I like in the story. Um uh, that the, the agency of these different characters and how they respond, because I, I think to dictate certain models to others um, it, is where it actually becomes something that uh, b- becomes restrictive um, uh, r- rather than something that delivers and liberates and saves. Um, uh, but I, I'm just where on a personal level, as I get older, um, the, the complexities of, of me, and, and some of those ways of engaging that. Um, and it, even if it comes across um, with a warmness and a personality, um and with a, with a sense of um, uh, seeking to do to others imaginatively and compassionately what I'd want them to do to me, it's, it's no less problematic. And so I, I'm not always sure that if I take that from my own personal kind of reflection i'm sure that's true of many of us as well that um some of the ways that we're wired um we respond just the way we can (laughs) um and uh, i'm not always sure what to do with that Mm. with with me or others
2: yeah yeah and i i guess the thing is you know if we think about approaching any of these things with with wisdom none of us know the outcome what mm-hmm. we're doing like you wouldn't have known at the time obviously that your speech on the you said it was something to being obviously it was too subversive <laughs>
3: was.
2: oh yeah
0: where I found out was um so we run six different spaces during the week so um one's called subversive seminary and that's where I found out oh okay, um,
3: okay.
2: yeah yeah right, right yeah so obviously you wouldn't have known at the time and it wouldn't have been your intention um and we don't know and similarly with Esther maybe you know she could have been all nice she wouldn't have known we can see with you know, hindsight in the, in the book, in the Bible, but it is it is always difficult to know. And I guess this is like what Drew was saying is that you have to approach it prayerfully and you need your community to call you out when necessary. And part of wisdom, I guess, is knowing when to push hard and and maybe when to be softer and, and also accepting we'll get it wrong because none of us, yeah. I mean... I don't know about you guys, obviously, from a Christian perspective, maybe it's different, but Islamically, none of us are prophets. None of us have divine inspiration from God. So <laughs> we will get it wrong. Um, and that doesn't take us off the hook, I guess, but it's also it's a reality that sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll make a mistake as well.
0: Yeah, yeah and I, um, I think certainly from uh, a Jewish and Christian perspective, the way that um, the prophetic is portrayed is that it's not separate from getting it wrong
2: <laughs> mm, that's interesting <laughs> like, it's
0: it, there's the complexity and you have um, prophets uh, who's uh, and both um, their witnesses are in the Canon um, who contradict each other and and um, uh, what do you what do you do with that the two different social locations two different responses um, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, both of it as part of um, it, it inspired canon so um mm-hmm. Uh, th- there's a there's a dialectic and paradox which brings us into our own dialectics and paradoxes, which is really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Susan, I, I did want to ask, um, and particularly for me, uh, the, the last um, uh, I, I had um, dramatic changes in in my life um, uh, beyond uh, my own control and uh, you were very kind and I don't even know if you remember some of the messages that, that you sent, but um, really ministered to me in quite profound ways. And I I felt incredibly jealous of um, uh, your, your certainty in what everything happens being the will of God. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I know that um, for some Christians, that's very true as well, um, that, uh, and, um, uh, like all of us, um, sometimes we, we hold to certain, um, intellectual frameworks or, uh, ideologies, um, because they meet deep personal needs and, you know, it's easy to go to, um, talking about the show of the Holocaust, particularly with this text, um, mm-hmm. that's been used by, um, so many of um, our, our Jewish neighbors and friends to reflect on, um, the the horror of genocide. Um, uh, But just for us personally as well, I I see in you um, and um, what you write and how you write so beautifully, there's this deep sense that um, uh, with that comes, uh, there's a transformation I'm being called to in all of this. And um, I guess I'm asking on a personal level, um, do, do you struggle with that? kind of sense of um uh because maybe i lean too much the other way in fact i know many christians who have accused me of just that that um uh, so for for me sovereignty has to pass through a crucified messiah so whatever it means sovereignty means it it means um uh this strange suffering um uh but would you speak a little bit to um those kind of differences. And I not to flatten, this is Christianity's take because there's a multiplicity of takes, and this is Islam's takes because there's a multiplicity of takes. But um, would you speak to to that some?
2: As in how do I grapple with suffering? Is that what you mean? Is that, is that what you want me to speak about?
0: Or everything being... So I, maybe I would put it that, um, and again, lots of Christians would disagree with me, God does not will all things. Um, uh, God wills something in all things, but God does not will all things. Um, I pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because uh, I see that purpose and desire actually impinging upon each moment, but not necessarily being realised in each moment. Um, But I deeply admire and uh, I'm almost jealous of um, uh, those who are like, no, this is just ordained and... um, where, would you speak to some of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is huge. <laughs> I don't know how much... Yeah, I'll just
0: been. go all the light stuff, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I
2: mean, because this, is, uh, this sort of ties in with everything, you know, the sovereignty of God, the the, um, the place of evil, the role of yeah. suffering. This is, this is all these things combined. Yeah. Um, and these are obviously things that, you know, just from the, the Muslim point of view, scholars have spent their whole lives grappling with, most minute details within this what you know what is the will of god and what does it mean and how far does it extend and and all of these things so you know i'm not i'm i'm not a quranic scholar i'm not a theologian i'm a sociologist so i can only um talk about it you're a
0: pretty damn great theologian as well like um, (laughs) albeit like organic grassroots (laughs) like um there's so many people who were so super impressed just by your introduction to Esther and were just like, uh, dang. You know,
2: um, but so, but I, you know, I can only speak about it from my own messy, limited understanding, and also very aware that these kind of conversations about the will of God and, you know, Islamically, that everything is the will of God um, can be very painful for some people to hear because of what it implies that the terrible suffering that they've experienced is the will of god is is can be spiritually a very difficult thing to grapple with so i know that and i understand so it's a, it's a it's a delicate minefield to step through i guess so all i can do is is speak about it from my own understanding perspective and that islamically um, we do believe that everything is the will of god that everything um Everything is written by God. The 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 pleasant and the unpleasant, the the awful and the the lovely, um, and that one of the important things for Muslims in grappling with that, if we do say, as you, as you said, Jared, every chapter except one in the Quran starts with, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. So if God has said again and again and again about himself and defined himself in, um, as the compassionate and the merciful, so how can we understand this? How can we frame suffering and evil and, and all these horrible things? How do we frame that with a God who insists on calling himself? And I say him Islamically, God is, is genderless, but, you know, for the sake sure. of like himself. Yeah. Um, how do we understand this God who sees himself as compassionate and merciful? And a really important thing for Muslims is the, um, that this life is a very, uh, is only one aspect of our existence. Muslims hold a very firm, adamant belief in justice in the next life, it's really, really important to us. So the only way we can, we can reconcile the um, pain and equality and injustice of this life is the firm belief that it will be all rectified in the next life, that justice will be achieved, that um, all of that, because as well as God defining himself in the Quran repeatedly as the Compassionate, the merciful, the loving is another one. He also refers to himself as as the most just. So I also have to rely on if God really is who he says he is, That it's one of those if-then arguments or if-then mm-hmm. understandings. If he says that he is the most just, then he will reconcile all of this in the if not in this life, then in the next. Like I have to sincerely believe that. So that injustice that was done to that child, that woman, that whole community that will be um, reconciled in the next life uh, by God and that God takes um, oppression very seriously. Allah says that in the Quran repeatedly. Mm. Um, So that is the way that we, for Muslims, is that we have to or that we do, we we can hold these things, these tensions together in us and that we can in many ways endure the horrors of this life. Is to believe that Muslims never thought that this was all there was. This is mm. just one relatively small portion, um, and that what happens in the next life is just as, if not more, important than what happens here. Um, and I think that's that sort of a way that we we tie it together. And that doesn't dismiss the pain of now at all. You know, we also believe that God sees and hears everything. So he knows every pain that we carry. All of that is recorded with Him. It matters to Him, and it will be. Not only does it matter to him, but in the next life we believe the people who hurt us, all of this will be accounted for. Um, And I think that helps it feel. um, That's how we can accept that a merciful, loving God does allow awful things to happen to often good and innocent people.
0: Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate your vulnerability and even um, answering those kind of questions because they do bring up so much for us.
2: Which know, sorry, Joe.
0: No, 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 you go. I
2: was just gonna say, I know that, like I said, particularly for people that have experienced real horrific oppression, I realize that those answers can sound very trite. Um, and so you know, no doubt there have been Muslim scholars that have done a, a far better job than I have of explaining it and reconciling it. And I guess it's just if nothing else, don't take that explanation as a, a lack of interest or investment by God in the pain of now. If anything, for Muslims, we see it as an absolute vindication of that, that mm-hmm. none of this is meaningless and all of this will be reconciled and there was a point and, and all that. Yeah, Beautiful.
0: Um, I'm aware, Drew, that um, this might be the perfect transition um, uh, from podcast proper to the Q&A, particularly in light of uh, the time and um, Susan's time and how generous she's been. Um, But, Susan, um, this has been fantastic. Really, really fantastic. Thank you um, so much. And uh, um, if you're still willing uh, to stick around for a little bit, we'll do some Q&A with those who are joining us um, live. Mm -hmm. But. But just to say um, thank you, and uh, we would love to have you back anytime. This was so incredibly yep. rich. So if you feel like scaring yourself again, um, it, it might have been terrifying for you, but we have had yeah, an incredible so time. Yep, yep. I will
2: commit not to crapping on as much in the beginning as I did next
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> not, a, not at all. I, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I feel like, um, um, it, yeah, it was just so rich.
2: now my pleasure thanks for having me
1: the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse